Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Nugawauer, coming to you live to air. Uh, it's kind of sunny, cool, overcast. I'm actually here in suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Actually in Maple, Ontario, next door to Thornhill. Uh, if it sounds a little different, I am speaking at my church <laughs> for the first time. Just seeing what this sounds like, uh, I'm going to give a bit of a, this is a bit of a test. You know, if I go into talking about Qui-Gon Jinn and Master and Apprentice, then why not? Um, it's interesting, I read the bit about Qui-Gon and Prophecy, and I was, this is the reason why I'm reading this book, is to, to see what it says about Prophecy. And, um, yeah, he goes into it in chapter, I believe it's chapter 5 here, goes into his approach. And uh, this, this interesting dialogue with a conversation with Obi Wan in in his quarters. Obi Wan is of course doesn't understand what's with all this prophecy stuff. He's a seventeen year old kid, um, hasn't really been taught how to interpret prophecy, which sounds familiar, right? Um, he uh, he goes and says, oh, "What?" this weird temptation, is rightly so, understandable temptation to interpret the future and to control. And that's, oddly enough, this meta conversation about how prophecy is often used in science fiction. Think of Alistair Galactica, for example, and how uh, it's used to say, oh, and these end time prophecies that are now coming to pass. And there is that precedent, of course, from dispensationalism and left behind and all that nonsense. Um, of course, there is apocalyptic messages about what will come to pass. And, and the in Isaiah, for example, the hope of, of a new city that then does get taken up into apocalyptic literature. But even Qui-Gon understands that the prophecies are really about two things. They're about two different presents more than they're about the future. He says they're about what are the what were the concerns. See if I can actually find. Uh, yeah, here it is, right here, page forty-three. Qui-Gon oh, says to Obi-Wan, the prophecies, the prophets, the mystics. Uh, you know, the ancient Jedi mystics were attempting to look into the future, but they were rooted in their own time, as we all are. They could only predict the future through the prism of their own experience. So by studying their words, their warnings, we learn more about their ways than any history hollow could ever teach us. So that's interesting, right? They, their present, their preoccupations. I think of how with Isaiah hope, hoping for you know, a great city and uh, people who, who, if you're 100 years old, will be considered a youth. And people who can plant their own farms and, and eat from it. These preoccupations of people who were oppressed, were poor, who didn't have a very long life expectancy. 
in, in Isaiah's time, and the, the preoccupation that he was seeing of marauders from you know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming in and removing them from that land, or uh, as was often the case, a lot of very heavy tribute being required on behalf of foreign kings or even domestic kings. And that's the, the thing that um, Samuel says to the Israelites, and this is what a king is going to do to you. So we see that anxiety expressed in the hope one day that that'll change, that God will restore the people to their own land, to their own prosperity, that land flowing with milk and honey. And so that's why we have this vision. That's why that's considered to be a hopeful vision in response to what may have been happening at the time. But there's another important, interesting piece here. So it says, so by studying their words, their warnings, we learn more about their ways than any history hollow could ever teach us. And here's the thing. And by asking ourselves how we interpret these prophecies, we discover our own fears, hopes, and limitations. And that's an incredibly amazing thing. I mean, I think of, I've talked about dispensations, and I mentioned that a minute ago, and the ways in which it was always used to weaponize the other. It was always, you know, first it was the communists or the Muslims or the atheists or whoever. Uh, I do think that's in large part was something underlying fueling support for Trump, for example, and I got into that ad nauseum. Um, you know, a similar thing, people who are deeply concerned for social justice and equality, really talking about the longing for a day when, uh, when all will be restored and, and there will be peace. So we cling to those, that hope of the future. Either way, there's a temptation to make it happen and control it. I was uh, <laughs> a young, this is oh, 11 years ago, a young, very enthusiastic, very uh, apocalyptically minded, interested in the book of Revelation, first year student going into the first graduate program in theology. And the, I was in an urban and international development class, and uh, the class or the program, and the class was called Forging the Kingdom. And in another class, the systematic theology class, the prof had just finished his commentary on, on the book of Revelation. And very young, kind of naive, but also I see where I was coming from. Uh, you know, saying, okay, writing this email to the prof or whatnot. I forget what the email was about. And then my, my sign-off was forging the kingdom, comma, Matthew. And <laughs> he had just written this, uh, this commentary about this great apocalypse that's all about bearing witness to Christ the Lamb who surrendered power and control and thereby gained the kingdom the seals and the throne <laughs> and we bear witness to this city coming down to this kingdom that is given to us and uh, 
here I am forging the kingdom, right? We make it for ourselves. And again, that, that is a helpful impulse. And I think the prof would agree that's a very important impulse to want to actually get to work and do the work of peace building and community building. He wouldn't deny that for a second. But is it animated by a sense that God is motivating us and driving us and moving us to helpful that I'm saying this in a church <laughs> by myself. I'm alone in the church. Anyway, God is moving us and driving us or is it rooted in a preoccupation that we have, we have to get busy, that it entirely depends on us or else? It's this funny line that our, our Western progressive, progressive left-wing, if you will, egalitarian Christians walk that we, we haven't fully, the balance that we haven't fully gotten. And that's why there's a lot of burnout and a lot of struggle. Um, but there's, again, something to it in that once we bear witness, we're spurred to action. So that, that's a wonderful example of what I'm talking about, of what, what I see in terms of our current preoccupations when it comes to the kingdom coming among us. And, and there's a faithful way of understanding this now and not yet. Uh, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What's interesting with, with Qui-Gon is he embodies the prophetic role, uh, not just in his words, but we're given a story. We're given... Uh, a narrative where he has to be tied in into his convictions and in this early part of the um, part of the book he's offered a seat on the high council and it's a very difficult decision again something that differentiates maybe the prophet from I don't know the the teacher or the pastor or people who are called to actually engage the system he's offered a seat on the council and he has to ask can i actually create more change from within and it's a question that obi-wan will two years later i think and ask him tell him look if you just play ball a little bit you'd have a seat on the council because he's an incredibly respected master it's not like he's an angry bitter vagabond he just wants to maintain the purity of his his view and so that's his struggle and and you know a few chapters in i haven't quite gotten to uh just at the end of chapter five on my reread i haven't quite gotten to how he wrestles with it but we know he doesn't end up accepting that seat an interesting point there is one of the reasons is the implications it will have for Obi-Wan's life. Because when he, one of the things he's concerned, I think Qui-Gon is concerned with, is communicating that, uh, you know, training a Padawan isn't as significant, isn't as important as having a seat on the High Council. And that's something Qui-Gon just won't accept. He, 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 they, he even, in, in his kind of point of view narration, says uh, both duties are equally sacred 
equally weighty. It's interesting knowing that Qui-Gon uh, makes his choice. Yes, part of it is to have that influence, quote, on the inside uh, going forward. But it's in a way that is more, more powerful than any other Jedi Master on the Council could possibly imagine. Right? We see this bearing fruit all the way into The Last Jedi. Right? But especially with In A New Hope, strike me down, I will be more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Right, the, That Obi-Wan is even able to maintain Qui-Gon's prophetic role. Imagining an influence and a power for good and for change that goes beyond uh, the Grand Army of the Republic, beyond the Empire, beyond the Sith, and their ability to deal death. What's interesting then is uh, we're given an insight into how in Revenge of the Sith, for example, Obi-Wan is able to have the flexibility to adapt Yoda has it to some degree, but you know we can say, uh, you know, given the impossible circumstances at the end of the Republic, that the end of the Jedi, that Obi Wan and Yoda are faced with, the best they could hope for is to bend and not break. There's no chance of them staying straight and clear. Uh, stay, you know, keeping the status quo because that was just impossible. That's the impossible situation is that everything changes and you need to learn how to adapt to be clear with your own Jedi convictions but at the same time know which traditions need to innovate. Right? We'll see that in its entirety in The Last Jedi where Luke isn't able to really innovate based on his own experiences, but Yoda comes to him and says, actually, you know, uh, the, well, we don't quite know fully this full story, but Ray has everything uh, she needs, namely the books and the ability to interpret what needs to happen now. Um, we are what they grow beyond. That is the way of all masters. And Qui-Gon is here able to see, okay, well, I don't necessarily can have a seat. I can't necessarily have a seat on the council. Obi-Wan might, and that's great. But it's what Obi-Wan does with his seat on the council, right? He's able to have the rootedness of the tradition that his own sense in his own upbringing in the, in the temple that Yoda and others instilled in him, but also the ability to just give up everything, go into hiding on Tatooine, and wait for Luke to be ready, to meditate on this new thing of becoming a force ghost, sticking to his ideals sticking to what it means to be a Jedi, to preserving the light and serving the light in a galaxy now shrouded in darkness. Um, as opposed to, so, so he bends, 
someone like Mace Windu, he breaks. He goes from, during the Clone Wars, he goes from uh, Jedi, we're keepers of peace, not so Sorry, this is in episode one, we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers, to <laughs> the end of Revenge of the Sith. He's too dangerous to be kept alive. We have to assassinate him now. Now, that may have been maybe an okay choice, but you got the purple lightsaber, you've got the uh, very clear militaristic overtones. Uh, he's the one who voices the need for a coup to a dark place that carries us. He's broken and he's. I don't want to say he's fully fallen to the dark side, but you know he falls off of, of course, out of Darth Sidious' office. Obi Wan doesn't go that far. Yoda doesn't go that far. He recognizes the failure. He falls out too. He falls out of the Senate chamber in a way that echoes Luke falling out of Bespin or Cloud City. Um, rocked by, both of them rocked by the realization of how intimately connected they are with the rise of the Empire and what to do next and how to live as Jedi. I've gone into a bit with The Last Jedi about how that's profound in the the question of what needs to, what traditions do we need to hold on, what do we need to innovate we see this where this comes from. It comes from Qui-Gon's own ability to ask this very question, to hold this question, even his ability to, to see the war coming, his sensitivity and openness to the Chosen One. His, yeah, he, he has the, the, the good offer of a seat on the council but he turns it down for the greatness of continuing to train Obi-Wan to be there when they encounter Anakin, to uh, continuing to influence generations of Jedi to come as a Force ghost and through his example. So hopefully that sounded okay. That in this audio, <laughs> let me know. Those are my thoughts on the first five chapters of my reread of Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice. I hopefully will continue this series as I go. I know the Thrawn Ascendancy book is coming out next week. But um, yeah, I also like this, this time length, about 20 minutes, just getting my thoughts out. Let me know what you think of those thoughts uh, in terms of what prophecy is how Qui-Gon might embody that. Uh, I'm going to hopefully keep going with this reread. But for now, this is, and I'm going to keep giving the episode titles. This has been episode 59 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always. <laughs>